Welcome to the Pod Control Podcast, brought to you by Red Hat. Pod Control is your source for containers, Kubernetes, OpenShift, and all things cloud native. Hello, Kubernetes community, and welcome back to the Pod Control Podcast. It is Good to have you all back. It's good to be back talking about Kubernetes again. And it seems like things have gotten a little bit heated up in the industry. I know we're getting closer to, uh, you know, sort of trade show season. We see more announcements. We're getting closer to, uh, you know, we had a, a recent release that came out here and we've got KubeCon coming up. So we're starting to see a few more announcements going on in the industry. I uh, wanted to highlight a couple of them just for those of you that may have missed a few. Uh, nice to see some some VC funding into the industry. Both uh, Aqua Security and Portworks, uh, within the last couple of weeks, both took uh, pretty nice size rounds of funding. Uh, I think Portworks was around thirty million in the security space, or I'm sorry, in the storage space. Aqua Security, uh, you know, around uh, sort of container security and so forth, around sixty plus million. So good to see investment around that space. Obviously. Um, Kubernetes 114 came out a couple of weeks ago, uh, Windows containers being kind of the, the headline there, but a couple of other interesting things going on. We will do uh, likely a show on with the 114 updates here pretty soon. A um, couple of new things came into the CNCF. We saw Open Policy Agent. We saw Spiffy. Uh, we saw Cloud Native Build Packs all get into sort of incubation or sandboxing um, in the CNCF. So you know, take a look at those if they're interesting to you, um, and then keep in mind that you know CNCF has this whole process of of bringing projects in, beginning to sort of incubate them, sandbox them, and then depending on how fast they they grow and mature, uh, they get you know closer to to GA. So there's some stages there. Um, I think that's it. Uh, we'll talk about some other things next week, but. Uh, you know, one of the things that always comes up every time I look at uh, customer feedback or analyst analysis of the market is um, as cool as Kubernetes has gotten, as much as it scales and people are using it, security is always a big thing. And uh, I am one of those people that is very quick to point out that security is not a strength for me. So I always have to go out and, and find some very smart people that will help me learn some things and, and learn some areas, new areas that, um, you know, we may not talk enough about, but we need to definitely talk about. So very excited to grab one of those people that is a uh, become a good friend and somebody who I rely on for a lot of security things. So Mark Borstein, CTO at Tremolo Security. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Brian, for having me. So, you know, like I mentioned, um, there's a lot around security that that uh, that we don't always talk a lot about. I think partially because it makes some people uncomfortable, except for security professionals um, like yourself. We talked about policy a couple of weeks ago uh, with John Osborne, but you and I were in London, uh, a couple of months ago, I think it was just before the new year, uh, we were at an OpenShift Commons gathering event. And and you said, you know, one of the things I would, that you really wanted to highlight, um, and I thought it was great, was this idea of, you know, Kubernetes, Kubernetes extended authentication models. Um, and I kind of want to dig into that today. But before we dig into it, help me a little bit. Um, policy is one thing. And I, I think I tend to associate policy with like RBAC and things like that. And then there's the the sort of AAA authentication, authorization, accounting stuff. And some people blur them together. Maybe we confuse them. Can we start there as like, what's the difference between policy and, and stuff around authentication and authorization? That's a great question. So I'm even going to take it up to a higher level. Um, usually when, when folks, especially in the security realm, talk about policy, uh, we're, we're talking about a piece of paper written by somebody that says, thou shalt do these 12 things. Um, so, uh, you know, in the federal space, NIST state 153 is one that comes up a lot. That's, that's one of the gold standards, uh, PCI compliance is often one or HIPAA are, are some of the better known ones out there. Um, 
back in the day. Uh, uh, not that it doesn't come up anymore, but uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, another set of policies. So um, policies are often the in the security world, the stuff that's written down on paper, uh, things that say um, you must have authorization policies, you must have um, uh, uh, you must have uh, certain levels of password complexity, things like that. It, it's not always, in, in fact, it's generally completely divorced from the technology that's being implemented. And then the next level is to figure out, okay, how do we apply that policy to a technology? And every technology has its own security implementations. In the Kubernetes world, it's our back, role-based access control, or at least that's usually the first level. Right. And so what you'll often do is you'll you'll take a policy that says, um, so I'm going to come back to NIST 853. Uh, there is a really well-worded policy that says something to the effect of, um, this policy requires that you have an authorization policy to authorize users, which is really clear and very concise and basically leaves open to everything interpretation. Basic <laughs> idea is it says, okay, you have to have a way to authorize users for access. It doesn't tell you what that means. It doesn't tell you how to do it. But when the auditor comes and says, how do you handle this control? You know, you have to have a way to answer that. Um, and Kubernetes doesn't do that out of the box. Very few applications do. That, that's where process and workflow engines come in. Uh, and so you've got to take those policies, and, and there are a whole bunch of other policies. Like, like I said, there's password complexity. There is, um, uh, uh, you know, things that say you will make sure that only certain people have access to things. And you need to translate that into the technology itself. And and RBAC is great uh, to a point. It gets you to your um, APIs you know, at a very technical level. You, Brian, you can you can create namespaces. You can edit service accounts uh, inside particular namespaces, or you are a cluster administrator. But what it can't then do is get to that next level of security that is more at the, the business level. So if the policy says you have to have a, a, a framework for authorizing users, you might have a business requirement that has another level of security. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of our customers, uh, a financial services customer, uh, they trade, they use their Kubernetes clusters for running uh, their analysis apps, their, their ETL applications. And so um, the different devs working on the data, this is all very policy controlled data, the compliance controlled data. So when they access this data stored in Windows file shares of all places, they have to do it as them. Like you, you can't just have a service account that accesses this data. It has to be accessed as them. You have to be able to track it from that access all the way back up to when they deployed the, the deployment or the pod that runs this information that, that executes against the database. Um, and so uh, in order to do that, we had to look beyond RBAC. RBAC doesn't provide you that level of authorization into Kerberos. And we found a few interesting things. We could set up a persistent volume claim to a, a Windows file share. Not out of the box. It's not not kube native, but there, there are ways to do that, right? But we ran into this issue of, well, what if user one somehow manages to get the persistent volume of user two? That's bad. 
like out of the box, Kubernetes is it, it's eventually consistent, right? So you can create a persistent volume claim that's not yet mapped to a persistent volume, and once that persistent volume comes up, Kubernetes matches it to the claim. Uh, but when you're there's some security around your persistent volumes, you don't want to do that. You want to make sure that the person requesting the claim is actually the one that's going to do that. And so to implement that, uh, we look to a project that you had just mentioned in the news. Uh, that uh, ha has uh, uh, graduated to incubator status, open policy agent. And it's a great project because the the idea behind open policy agent is you write policies in a similar way that you might write them on paper. So they're declarative, uh, they are testable, and you're able to actually write them outside of your Kubernetes cluster. So as an example, when you set up your open policy agent project or, or uh, code, you can actually say something to the effect of, you know, the, when the persistent volume claim comes in, is there a persistent volume that matches it? And does that persistent volume meet some kind of rule that says that this user should be able to get access to that claim? Uh, and when you write that that policy, you write it in such a way that you can test it in a very automated way outside of Kubernetes. So you're not actually checking on, on uh, whether it works when you deploy it. You can actually test it outside of that. And then you integrate that into Kubernetes, and, and this is where the extended authorization model comes in, as an emission controller via webhook. And so that's one of the great ways that you're able to go from um, uh, 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 you know, the, the, the RBAC world into that extended authorization realm that Kubernetes offers. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, no, that, that starts to make sense. And I think, you know, the other thing, I, so I like the, I like the beginning where you sort of said, look, policy is somebody has stated a, a directive of like, can do, can't do, but it's not, doesn't always necessarily tell you how to go about implementing that. And that's typically done for, you know, for certain reasons, it allows people to, you know, kind of adapt technology to what they need. Um, then the next step is we get into this, uh, you know, what are actual users or service accounts or services allowed to do? That's kind of the authentication. And, and then you sort of have to get into the specifics of, of, you know, what are people trying to do? How are they going to get audited or be compliant with things? Uh, and then you have to sort of think through the the corner cases, like you said, where you have things like, uh, you know, understanding the technology, i.e., like persistent volumes. How are they? How are they created? How are they mapped? Um, th that you're going to find these nuances in and kind of corner cases, or you know, maybe potentially big security holes that people have to think through and think about. Yeah, and what what was really interesting about this project? Um, I mean, I've been working with Kubernetes and OpenShift for a couple of years, and it was really amazing, like how intricate. Um, the, the technology is and, and the, the, the relationships between things. So give me an example. In order to be able to do this for this customer, um, we need to be able to do a few things. One, like I said, we need to make sure that a, a persistent volume got linked to the correct persistent volume claim. Um, the other thing that we needed to do was we need to be able to inject information into pods. Uh, so uh, kind of a sister to the, the validating webhook that I had just described is the idea of this mutating webhook where you can actually transform a submission to the API server. 
incredibly powerful. Where most people are actually going to run into it is if they're working with Etsio. As an example, they uh, like to inject a sidecar container in order to make the service mesh work. In our case, this additional information that we had to put in to the pod, we had to create a sidecar that managed the key ring for, for Kerberos because you don't want to, you know, it's bad design to, to build that directly into every single container. And we had to add additional metadata and um, uh, 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 service account information. Uh, and so from a support standpoint, the folks that owned OpenShift did not want their developers having to make sure that they're adding all this stuff every time because when they get it wrong and, you know, it's YAML, right? We're all going to get it wrong at some point. Uh, they get the phone call that says, hey, this doesn't work. So they wanted to make it as simple as possible. So we said, all right, let's add an annotation. And that annotation will say, add Kerberos to this pod. And our mutating webhook will do the rest. And we ran into something really interesting. So when you write your webhooks, Kubernetes gives you a little bit of context. It doesn't just give you the, the, the JSON being submitted, but it tells you who submitted it in the form of a, a, a web token. Now, if you create a pod directly in Kubernetes, the token that you get for the, the webhook is you. So if you, Brian Gressley, were to say kube control create pod, I get your token and I can make a decision off of that. And anything that was in that token I get. Um, but when you create a deployment, the deployment itself submits it as a service account. So I don't know who actually submitted the request for the original deployment. Um, so, so, so that was one area that became interesting. The second area that became really interesting in all this um, was that when we started to do our integration, uh, we found a really interesting difference between upstream Kubernetes and OpenShift. So they were doing this deployment on OpenShift. And um, OpenShift, one of the key differences from an identity standpoint from upstream is it has a built-in identity provider. With Kubernetes, Kubernetes doesn't actually authenticate anybody. It trusts an assertion. You, you give it a JWT, a, a JSON web token, digitally signed, that says, you know, I'm Mark, here are my groups, and then my RBAC bindings are based on that. But that's not how... OpenShift works. OpenShift actually knows who users are. It keeps track of users. It keeps track of groups. And so you authenticate to this main central source, which then gives you your rights throughout OpenShift. So as a consequence of that, the only information that we got in the webhook wasn't the information, you know, no matter what we put in that JSON web token that we sent over to OpenShift, we only got very basic information back. So we needed a way to be able to add uh, additional information. And so the way we did with this particular project was we put Open Unison, our company's project, in between the API server and um, uh, OPA, Open Policy Agent. Uh, so when the webhook request was made, it went to our reverse proxy. We intercepted it, augmented the request with information out of um, combination of free IPA and Active Directory sent it on its way to OPA, OPA was able to, to make the decisions it needed to in, in uh, a, a policy-based manner. Um, so it, it, it was really eye-opening, just all the different little pieces that, you know, kind of fit together that if you're going to do security right, you really have to have a good understanding of.
Yeah, no, and it, and that makes it makes a lot of sense. It also, uh, you know, makes sense as you were talking about it. You know, for for people to start, uh, you know, not only having kind of environments that they can play with, but you know, tools like like OPA that are going to let you do things offline and, and test out. Uh, you know policies and so forth, uh, but yeah, no, it's well, not not to mention, you know, it is it is very important to get folks like yourselves involved, um, you know, that have had some experience with this, understand the nuances of things before people start creating a whole lot of accounts or uh, kind of creating services and don't necessarily understand, you know, where the dependencies are, where there may be, where they may have created security holes, thinking they had just done something uh, done something normally. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because I was I was going to ask you about the the differences between uh, you know kind of native Kubernetes and and some of the the things that OpenShift adds on. Uh, you talked about that. What are what are some of the things that you know you you're dealing with security all the time? You've been dealing with Kubernetes now for a while. Uh, you know what what are some of the, the just kind of the mental checklists that you go through um, in terms of you know maybe the most mundane things that you want to make sure that people kind of get right around authorization and authentication. Um, and then maybe some of those areas that, you know, kind of need a little more uh, visibility so that people are aware of, of where there are gotchas. That's a great question. So the first thing I tell people to do is look at your organization, especially in enterprise um, as Kubernetes and OpenShift become more and more popular in, in, you know, kind of brick and mortar enterprises that we see every day. Um, the organization that they're being deployed into becomes really important uh, because typically the folks that own your cloud native environment are not going to be the same people who own your identity information. Um, and they're not going to be the same people making the security assessments. And so from a organizational standpoint, it becomes very important to understand who those stakeholders are and how they're going to affect you. Uh, the, the easiest way to think about you know, the impact of this, especially when you go to an enterprise, is when you look at the group that owns Active Directory, they're very concerned about workstations, servers, printers, um, you know, everything that ticks. Because when your Active Directory goes down, you're having a really, really bad day. Um, you know, that, that's, that's lifeblood for, for your IT organization. Uh, and so if you want a read-only service account and you want to be able to, to, you know, just authenticate against an AD, that, that's usually pretty easy, depending on the organization. You want to be able to write to Active Directory, that becomes a lot harder. Um, so, so look there. And then specifically when you're, when you're looking at Active Directory, um, getting down into the technology, Look to see if there is an identity federation solution available, either SAML2 or OpenID Connect. Um, you know, a lot of organizations have adopted Active Directory Federation services, uh, but depending on who owns what, you know, the, there can be all sorts of different solutions out there. And the reason I say that is because you're going to get a much cleaner integration uh, via uh, one of those two protocols, via Identity Federation, rather than going directly to LDAP. And the reason I say that is that when you look at your Active Directory group, they're organized in a way that was probably decided 20 years ago when Microsoft first started telling people to use Active Directory. Um, multiple force, multiple domains, they might not have the infrastructure in place to make it easy for applications to talk to because they might want them talking to different things. Uh, and so if you can go with a, a SAML2 or, or OpenID Connect approach, um, you're going to make your life a lot easier. So, so, so there's that aspect of things. Then look at your authorization model. Uh, how are you going to out, who's going to be responsible for onboarding things? Who's going to, 
when the audit comes in, who's going to be the one that has to sign on the dotted line that says, yep, I am responsible for these things. And how does that happen? Um, you know, a lot of times you get this thing up and running and it's like, all right, well, let's just start deploying namespaces and, and projects. And then uh, when it comes time to do an audit, it, it's digging through email, which makes nobody happy. I've been on both sides of that. Nobody enjoys that process. Um, so, so think about how you would want to automate that process. Right, right. Um, and then finally, think about the applications themselves. What are the applications going to need from an identity standpoint? Because you're not just automating your infrastructure. You want to be able to provide an infrastructure that supports your applications. Uh, you know, are your applications... You know, can you just have a, a big pool of compute resources and everybody can live in you know, harmony and you can enforce quotas and whatnot to make sure nobody steps on each other? Yeah, that's great. Rarely happens, though. Um, example, I had a government customer that was looking to deploy OpenShift in the cloud that had to talk to an old Sybase database. That was the name of the database. I couldn't remember the name of it. Um, you know, so so the, the Sybase databases that were running inside of their data center, and you know, of course, it's you know, it's a government agency. They have all of the interconnect and everything, so that you can talk from your public cloud into your data center, and vice versa. That part wasn't hard. <coughs> Excuse me, but in order to do that, you had to have static IP addresses for the source. So okay, that means we need to build you know a node develop uh, a, a node labeling structure to make sure that that happens. Um, so keep an eye on that as well. You know, you don't want to get, you don't want to fall into the trap of having to plan out every single detail, you know, kind of old school waterfall method. Um, but you want to kind of survey the, the landscape, get a feel for, for what you're going to deploy because it's going to make your security implementation much easier. Yeah, uh, those those make a lot of sense. I mean, you're ultimately you want to have a, a good set of fundamentals, good set of hygiene, and and then you know you're sort of planning for the unknown, and so you're you're building some some frameworks around doing that. It makes a ton of sense. Uh, I, I you know I'm I'm a little nervous about asking this question because I, I have a sense that it might drag out for a long time and it might need to be sort of its own its own show. Uh, if if somebody says, Mark, you know that's all great, um, you know you, we we lock down our our cluster, uh, we feel good about it from a security perspective, from an authorization perspective, but we want to start doing multi-cluster and federation. Um, is it just a matter of rinse and repeat, or do you feel like there's there's a whole lot of other things that people need to take into consideration? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, it, it, we're starting to work with customers now on multi-cluster, um, and it, it really there, – there are so many – questions that go into even beyond security of why you're doing multi-cluster. I mean, it runs the gambit from, you know, vendor XYZ says that we should really only be running one cluster per application. And I'm not saying that that's a great idea or a terrible idea, but that's just one side of things all the way to vendor ABC says we should run everything in one Uber cluster and, you know, rely on multi-tenancy and, and there's a spectrum in between. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, so you want to, Again, at a high level, apply all those same questions, figure out, well, does it make sense to have, um, I kind of call it the Lord of the Rings model, where you have one ring to rule them all, one cluster to bind them, or do you want to have more of a, a, a diverse federated model? Um, yeah, everybody's trying to maintain sprawl and, and, and constrain sprawl. 
Uh, so it, it, it just, it, it adds a level of complexity, but you still want to work on your fundamentals. Yep. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And, and definitely something that, you know, I know we talked about Federation last week with, with Paul Morey, there seemed to be a lot of interest in it. And, uh, you know, we'll want to dig into that a little bit more as, as people get more comfortable with the technology as it matures, uh, real quick before we wrap up, um, obviously you've got a bunch of, of experience in this space, but you know, Tremolo is doing a bunch of interesting things, both on the commercial side, but also on the community side. Anything interesting that you've been working on lately that people uh, should know about? Yeah. So uh, we actually just released Orchestra. It's a new open source project um, built on Open Unison, which is our main project, uh, for automating the login and uh, compliance and deployment of uh, namespaces into clusters. So we have variants for LDAP, SAML, and OpenID Connect. If you're looking for a straight-up login portal, deploys with a single YAML. There's no need for uh, external database of any kind, and you can transfer your external groups directly in Kubernetes. Uh, if you're looking for something a little more automated, you want to uh, maybe have a process to uh, self-service process to be able to onboard users and namespaces. Um, we have uh, the orchestra management portal. Both of them give you SSO into the dashboard, which is, makes life a lot easier when, when you're managing multiple clusters. Uh, it makes it really easy to, to be able to add that external authentication authorization model. So they're both open source. Uh, take a look at uh, our website. We've got it up there. Um, and I'm going to be out in San Francisco next week for Google Next. And then we are going to be debuting our operators at Red Hat Summit in a few weeks. Very cool. Very, very cool. Uh, good to see Good to see uh, operator adoption. I know we're seeing that uh, a lot from different segments. So, Well, listen, Mark, uh, as I said at the top of the show, um, I, I, I don't hide my, my ignorance sometimes around security. I'm always appreciative when, when folks are educating me on some things. I hope the listeners uh, got quite a bit out of this. And uh, you know, we threw a lot at them, but uh, we really appreciate the time. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, folks, as always, thank you for listening to the show. Thanks for telling a friend, helping us uh, helping us grow the show, uh, you know, rating it on iTunes, uh, the good ones and the bad ones. And uh, with that, we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Pod Control Podcast. You can find everything about the show at podcontrol.com, P-O-D-C-T-L, or at Pod Control on Twitter. We'll talk to you again next week.